our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. You're listening to Weird Medicine with Dr. Steve on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. I've got diphtheria crushing my esophagus. I've got Ebola virus dripping from my nose. I've got the leprosy of the heart valve exacerbating my incredible woes. I want to take my brain out and blast with the wave, an ultrasonic, echographic, and a pulsating shave. I want a magic pill for all my ailments, the health equivalent of Citizen Kane. And if I don't get it now in the tablet, I think I'm doomed and I'll have to go insane. I want a requiem for my disease, so I'm paging Dr. Steve. It's Weird Medicine, the first and still only uncensored medical show in the history of broadcast radio, now a podcast. I'm Dr. Steve. This is a show for people who would never listen to a medical show on the radio or the internet. If you've got a question you're embarrassed to take to your regular medical provider, if you can't find an answer anywhere else, give us a call. 347-766-4323. That's 347-POOHEAD. Follow us on Twitter at Weird Medicine. Visit our website at weirdmedicine.com for podcast medical news and stuff you can buy or go to our merchandise store cafepress.com slash weirdmedicine most importantly we slash I er am not your medical provider take everything you hear with a grain of salt don't act on anything you hear on this show without talking it over with your doctor nurse practitioner physician assistant pharmacist chiropractor acupuncturist yoga master physical therapist or whatever alright very good alright well don't forget, please don't forget, stuff.drsteve.com, stuff.drsteve.com for all your Amazon needs. Just about every product we've ever mentioned on this show is there, and plus you can just click through, go to Amazon, and um, it really makes a difference, uh, stuff.drsteve.com. Don't forget, tweakedaudio.com. It's uh, getting to be holiday season, and uh uh, earbuds make a great gift, particularly if they're the quality of tweaked audio, the best earbuds on the uh, market for the price. Tweakedaudio.com, offer code FLUID for 33% off, so you can buy three and only pay for two. So it's pretty awesome. Uh, you know, a lot of places give you a 5%, maybe a 10% discount on something. Uh, this is 33% off. Don't forget Dr. Scott's uh, website. It's simplyherbals.net. And uh, uh, that's it. That's all I've got to promo. So uh, if you are a premium subscriber, we're going to be ending the premium uh, thing pretty soon. It's a buck ninety nine a month. If you are interested in getting archives of this show while they're still available, uh, uh, for a buck ninety nine, you can sign on to premium.drsteve.com, download everything, and then just cancel your subscription. If you are a current subscriber to the premium service, uh, feel free to go ahead and unsubscribe. And um, if you're having difficulty unsubscribing, send an email to uh, support at libson.com or send an email to me and I'll forward it to them for you. 
and uh, we'll get you uh, unsubscribed because uh, that will be ending sometime in December. So I don't want anybody being charged for stuff they're not getting. Okay. All right. So I'm warning you with peace and love that as of uh, December 10th, the premium service will no longer exist unless I change my mind, which is a possibility, I guess. All right. Um, let's let's do some phone calls. Let's see here. Uh-oh. Well, Ronnie B., I messed up again, like I always do. Number one thing, don't take advice from some asshole on the radio. Hey, Dr. Steve oh. and Dr. Scott and Lady Diagnosis, if you're there. She's not. <laughs> anyway, um, I know y'all have talked about CBD oil a lot, and um, I was talking to my mom a couple weeks ago about um, CBD oil and antidepressants, and I was calling to, um, you know, just give you an idea of, you know, like, what are y'all's opinions on um, antidepressants versus just pure, like, natural um, Hmm. CBD oil, and this is for, you know, anybody who wants to put their two cents in, so to speak. (laughs) Anyway, um, big fan of the show, and I listen to y'all all the time, and I hope y'all have a wonderful afternoon or night or wherever it is oh, over there. Um, by the way, it's Sarah from Louisiana. We had um, tweeted, me and Dr. Steve have tweeted back and forth a little bit. Why? Wow. Um, but anyway, thanks for listening. And All right. I, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. That, uh, there was still a little bit left to go on that phone call. Um, okay. So CBD oil and depression. So CBD is cannabidiol. This, the legal stuff that you can buy at like, you know, the health food store and stuff like that. We have a, um, uh, Amish store called Yoder's and you can buy it from there. So everybody and their sister is selling this, and it turns out I was a little confused about it because the FDA just scheduled uh, cannabidiol. In in other words, they made it Schedule 5, meaning it's a controlled substance, uh, no longer Schedule 1 so that it could be used in a drug for uh, juvenile seizure disorders called uh, Dravet syndrome. Um, And there is a um, a company that is uh, producing that and selling it as medicine. So – I was confused because if it's scheduled, how in the heck can people be selling it and are they all violating the law? And it turns out that if you derive your CBD, your cannabidiol, um, which is an active ingredient in marijuana, but it is not uh, uh, hallucinogenic or uh, doesn't really make you high, it still activates certain um, cannabinoid receptors in the brain but not ones that cause euphoria. Well, anyway, so if you derive your CBD oil from hemp, um, it's legal because hemp is the non-THC-containing version of the uh, cannabis plant. And uh, hemp has been used for ages to make rope and soap and all kinds of stuff. And the CBD oil that is um, extracted from that is legal, whereas if it's extracted from the marijuana plant, 
it is now a scheduled substance, uh, as I said, Schedule 5, meaning it's of low abuse potential. So um, the here, this is the problem. If you buy the CBD that is produced by the pharmaceutical industry that is scheduled, it is tested by the FDA and quality controlled, and there are a lot of <clears throat> safeguards associated with that. So when you buy that, you know that you're getting the real deal. Now, that stuff's going to be crazy expensive. I'm guessing 1400 bucks a month. I may be wrong, but uh, I think it's, it's going to be really uh, extremely, extremely expensive. The stuff that you buy at, you know, your friendly neighborhood head shop, um, you don't know what it is. As a matter of fact, the FDA has pulled some of those from the shelves looking at them and said that some of them don't even have any CBD in them at all. And so that's my concern. Now, I have a very um, reputable pharmacy in my town that is selling it, and they swear that they vetted the supplier and that they know that it's the real deal. So that's what I would recommend if you're planning on using and buying this stuff, find out uh, what the provenance is of it. You know, what what is the chain of ownership? How do you know that what's in it is actually CBD oil and not just because somebody said it? And even in my situation, I mean, I'm not buying it, but I've talked to the guy about it. Um, you know, I, I, they all, all I can tell you is they are reputable and they swear that what they're selling is reputable and they've never steered me wrong in the past. That's the best evidence I've got. Now, we could pull some out and uh, send it off and do uh, GC mass spec, which is one, um, you know, it's mass spectrom, <laughs> spectroscopy, spectra, shit. You know, I was an organic chemist and I should uh, spectro. Uh, wait, let me see. Mass spect oh, spectrometry. I'm an idiot. You know, this is one of the reasons why I'm thinking of um, of of dropping out of radio because I think I have dementia. <laughs> I was an organic chemist and I couldn't remember mass spectrometry because I've said GC mass spec for so many years. Anyway, um, uh, that's that's kind of uh, humiliating. But anyway. Uh, we could do GC mass spec, um, gas chromatography, and uh, mass spectrometry on this stuff and see if it actually has um, uh, CB cannabidiol in it. Um, there are other things that we could do. There's nuclear magnetic resonance. Um, there are other analytic chemistry techniques that we can use to determine this stuff including just uh, finding uh, a, um, an antibody to it. And there are um, uh, tests that you can do that use uh, immunochemistry to determine whether a specific molecule is present and, uh, um, and try to analyze these things. Buy 10 different brands and see which ones actually have cannabidiol in them and then promote those. And then assume that they continue to have cannabidiol in them because – they, some of these may be just repack, rebottling stuff that they're buying overseas and then selling them. In other words, look, it's when you buy uh, uh, certain supplements, there is no 
true guarantee that you're going to get what's what it says is in there. The FDA has pulled multiple penis supplements off the market because they actually had sildenafil in them. In other words, they were uh, putting a bunch of herbs together and then they'd crush up some Viagra and toss that in there too so people would say, wow, this stuff really works. And uh, so the, But they don't go through the rigorous process of FDA uh, control and approval and uh, the FDA is sort of monitoring these things sort of in a spotty way. You know, they'll pull some stuff off the shelf and check it every once in a while, but it doesn't give you the the sort of warm fuzzies that it does when it's, uh, uh, you know, a prescription medication or an over-the-counter FDA-controlled medication. But anyway, so we'll see. As far as CBD and depression, um, I looked at cannabidiol – and uh, depression, here is uh, one study. This is from uh, Progress in Neuropsychopharmacology. And uh, the uh, article is from 2018. It says, antidepressant-like effect induced by cannabidiol is dependent on brain serotonin levels. Well, isn't that interesting since uh, Prozac and other drugs like that also uh, manipulate brain serotonin levels. This says cannabidiol is a compound. It's not really a compound. It's a molecule of cannabis sativa with relevant uh, therapeutic potential in several neuropsychiatric disorders, including depression. CBD treatment has shown significant antidepressant-like effects in different, uh-oh, rodent preclinical models. Uh-oh. <laughs> Now, in other words, <clears throat> they've used it in rats, and somehow they figured out that the rats were less depressed. However, the mechanisms involved in CBD-induced antidepressant effects are still poorly understood. Let's see if we can find a human study. Let me move my iPad out of the way here. Uh, again, I am at <clears throat> PubMed.com. This has – and you can search along with me. I am currently searching – the uh, keywords cannabidiol and depression. Uh, let's see here. Not a whole lot. This is the problem. Um, novel treatment options in depression and psychosis. We could look at that. Let's look at that one and see if it says anything about cannabidiol. Uh, nothing exciting there. So this is the problem. Uh, people are touting it for depression online. I have yet to find a good double-blind placebo-controlled human study on cannabidiol in um, depression. So, I, you know, if you know of one or two, and one really won't do because we need to be able to reproduce it. So we need at least two looking at the same thing. I'm still looking, still looking. Let's see what else we have here. Um, is there a role for cannabidiol in psychiatry? So anytime there's a question mark, then it's an, it's kind of an opinion piece. Um, well, nope. 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 Fluorinated cannabidiol derivatives enhancement activity in mice models – Predictive of anxiolytic, antidepressant, and antipsychotic effects. Again, 
These are preclinical, meaning they're, they're, they've not been tried in humans yet. They're looking at rats and trying to figure out, wow, is there something there? And then they'll bring this maybe to pigs and monkeys and then a hum, eventually humans. So uh, I would like to uh, find a human trial on depression. So I can't comment on it. I don't know. Um, I've got here, if you go to depressionalliance.org, it says CBD has been found to be effective in the treatment of depression. Well, okay, let's see what their references are, uh, if, if any. Let's go down to the bottom and look at their references. Um, okay, WebMD, that, that great medical journal, 10 Natural Depression Treatments. Okay, these are good. So she asked, she didn't just ask about CBD oil. She asked about natural treatments for depression. There are non-pharmacologic treatments for depression that can be effective. You want to do this under a psychiatrist or primary care provider's uh, uh, supervision, but getting in a routine uh, makes a big difference uh, and it needs to be an active routine. I know when I had depression and uh, severe panic disorder, staying on my work routine really helped. I had more trouble on the weekends when I didn't have to be somewhere at a certain time. Um, and depression definitely can strip away the structure from your life. So you want to get that structure back and continue uh, to uh, you know, make yourself do things that you don't want to do. Set some goals for yourself. Uh, make those goals easy to accomplish in the beginning, but make them harder so that you can do more and more things so that you can see that you're doing these things. Exercise has uh, antidepressant effects. Uh, eating healthy, certainly uh, because people can gain weight or lose a lot of weight. Uh, maintaining a balanced diet uh, when you're depressed can make a big difference. And, uh, and getting enough sleep, which is easier said than done when you're depressed because depression will affect uh, it'll either most people either have in primary insomnia when they are depressed, uh, which I guess is actually secondary insomnia if it's caused by the depression, or, or they will have hypersomnia and sleep all the time. Um, you're gonna, you know, one of the symptoms of depression is apathy or not wanting to do things. So taking on responsibilities while you're depressed will help get you into that, uh, again, into that structure and uh, not uh, don't allow yourself to sort of withdraw from life. You have to, again, you have to force yourself to do this. It was very difficult for me to force myself to go to the lab every day when I was so profoundly uh, screwed up in my head. But it really made a huge difference that I didn't allow myself to be affected by the, um, uh, by my mental changes. Uh, challenging negative thoughts and uh, checking with your doctor before you use any supplements and uh, do something new. You're going to be in a rut. Push yourself to do something different. Uh, go to museums. Do things that are uncomfortable so that you can see that you're not going to die by doing them. And uh, that will make a big difference. So, uh, But as far as CBD, I can't find any good uh, evidence that it works. It may even do some harm. Uh, I just don't know. I don't know. I'll be the first to tell you. Uh, I th I think it makes sense that it needs to be studied because the can uh, can cannabinoid receptors in the brain are involved in a lot of different functions, 
and I think we should be studying it for depression. They're they're looking at uh, these mouse models if they're positive. In other words, if there's a positive effect, then they'll uh, translate that eventually to human studies, and then we'll know more. I just don't know the answer. Okay. Quick question for you. How long does it take for me to get a new body? I know like my hip, for instance. That's not the one I was originally born with. Cells have died. Cells have been replaced. I've gotten a lot bigger, a lot bigger. Anyway, with the exception of your brain cells, I've always heard never get regenerated. How long, how long does it take for me to get a whole new fresh body? Thank you. Bye. Okay. Um, that's a really interesting question. He's right. So it begs the question, well, what is the person? If you upload your consciousness to a computer and the computer now has your consciousnesses in it and you destroy your body, um, have you committed murder? Is that still you in there? Uh, the, the All these scenarios always drive me crazy because if I upload my uh, consciousness to a computer, uh, unless – the process of doing that erases my consciousness from my body. Now, there's two people who think I'm me. One in the original body that goes, well, nothing happened. I'm still in this body. And then the other thing that goes, I just woke up inside a computer and now and I'm me. Uh, their experiences will begin to diverge immediately when that transfer happens. There was that uh, show um, – Oh, Hemlock Grove, where they were going to transfer this woman's uh, consciousness into uh, a different body. But they didn't kill the original body. So she was still running around going, well, nothing happened. And I'm still here. I don't want to die. And then the other person was like, well, wait a minute, but it's me. I'm in this other body. <laughs> it's so crazy. So there are a lot of phys- philosophical questions. Another one. So... Uh, Star Trek, you load yourself into a computer, right? And then you send that data to uh, another place and then you're recreated. It's not like a space warp. You're being destroyed on one end and then recreated on the other. Well, what if I just don't recreate you on the other side? Oops. Well, now you're gone. So did I commit murder? Or Yeah, well, I did. So let's uh, arrest me and take me to trial. Well, um, uh, just before uh, my trial begins, I just turn the transporter on and recreate you on the other end. And there, now you're alive. So I didn't commit murder. Um, why couldn't I, uh, if it's just data, uh, put myself in there and then recreate myself a hundred times on a hundred different planets or a thousand times all on one planet? I'll let you think about that for a minute. Um, I certainly could do that. It's instant cloning. As a matter of fact, here's the other thing. If you saw the movie, um, oh, shit, uh, not Star Trek Beyond, the one with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict Cumberbatch. Star Trek. What was that one called? Shit. Into Darkness. Okay, so at the end of Into Darkness, uh, 
if you remember, they uh, they used blood from was it? From, oh, now see, I I started this story and I can't remember. But uh, they brought Kirk back from the dead, I think, using Benedict Cumberbatch's blood, if I remember. And so that means now they have the cure for death. No one should ever die in a Star Trek thing ever again. But they just completely forgot about that. So um, because it's, uh, it, ruins, uh, it ruins everything. When you come up with an idea like that, the other thing that kind of ruins everything that you have to use a lot of head cannon to get around was in the latest uh, Star Wars movie, which the really cool scene where um, Holdo, which was Laura Dern with purple hair, um, uh, goes into hyperspace next to um, the, the First Order ship and just blows it to smithereens. Well, They've had hyperspace in every movie since the first one, but no one's ever done that before. So people on Reddit particularly are coming up with different um, types of headcanon saying, well, you have to do it just a certain way because you first you go to light speed and then you go into hyperspace. And, of course, when you're in hyperspace, you can't run into anything because you're in a different dimension. So it's got to be done just exactly right. But, yeah, okay, I, I agree with that. Absolutely no reason in a place where you have droids where you couldn't have ships piloted by droids that just go into hyperspace and kill the Death Star or any other ship. Um, why are they using blasters? They should be using hyperspace uh, missiles. Anyway, but, but it ruins everything if you do that. So that's no fun. So we have to just pretend it didn't happen. So anyway, I don't know. How did I get off on that? Uh, oh, so we're talking about the fresh body. Well, anyway, so your body uh, uh, that you have right now is not the same one you were born with because of cell turnover. Your skin is all different. Your GI tract, most of it is different. The brain really doesn't do a lot of turnover, so it's pretty similar, although it has grown and evolved over time as well as you uh, make new synapses and all this stuff. I'm just reading a, an article. It says the human body contains 10 trillion individual cells, taking into account all of the specialized tissues, those that regenerate quick, quickly and those that don't. An adult's body cells are likely to be on average between 11 and 15 years old. 11 and 15 years old. So the body you have right now is really no more than about 15 years old. And all the cells that came before that are gone. It's crazy. So now, oh, now I remember why I got into that tangent because <clears throat> this all is apropos to, say, the Star Trek transporter thing. Who am I? And why am I here? Um, and why am I quoting Ross Perot's? vice presidential candidate for those that are old enough to remember. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like this, the transporter thing. I destroyed my body. My body that I was born with is mostly destroyed. And yet I have this persistence of memory that says it's me. I've been here the whole time. So from a philosophical standpoint, it's kind of interesting. 
Uh, hi, Dr. Steve. My name is Phil from Tampa. Hey, Phil. And I'm calling uh, a two-part question. First, I was curious when you felt that but so I over the weekend I think I tweaked my knee a little bit. Um I can hear it popping when I move it sometimes. Uh and it's sore, it feels heavy sometimes. I'm going to the doctor to get it checked out. Um I, I hope it's just a, a random thing. But my question is, at what point do you feel like it's worth it for someone to check something, the difference between something being sore and something being a problem? And then my second question is and this, I guess, is more metaphysical, but when do you think people are just destined to live with something? Um, let's say knee pain or back pain or at what point is it just consistent or do you just have to deal with it or do you keep trying to fix it either through physical therapy or medication or, sure. or whatever? Or well, that's a cool question. A fix? Is it just continuing to live with the problem? Uh, yeah. Um, if it bothers you, it's worth investigating, period. And uh, if it can't be fixed, then you got to live with it. That's it. It's as simple as that. I, I have no more philosophical answer or more in-depth answer than that. And that that is true of just about every physical malady that we have. I've got a stiff first finger. I can still play bass and I can still play uh, my synths man. And it just clicks every once in a while. It's not – doesn't bother me enough to warrant investigation. And since I – it can't be fixed, I have to live with it. Uh, my neuropathy, on the other hand, uh, was driving me crazy. If you remember from last show, I think I talked about it. I couldn't stand up straight. With my eyes closed, I would fall over. And uh, it was bothering me. So I got it investigated. My neurologist was kind of worthless when it came to uh, actually doing something about it. Uh, so I investigated further and found uh, some supplements that uh, had actual scientific data behind it uh, for the uh, palliation and maybe even reversal of uh, peripheral neuropathy. And it actually helped. If you're interested in that, you can go to drsteve.com upper right-hand corner, click on the link that says for peripheral neuropathy suffers. And it's got a pretty long article talking about all sorts of different things that will make it feel better, but also four or five nutritional supplements that have data that um, uh, indicate that they may be effective in helping to uh, either ameliorate the symptoms or actually reverse the neuropathy. And I can tell you, I can take a shower now and not worry about falling down. So there you go. I don't have a question. I'm trying to help Jim and Sam show the head dog and sex life. I have a pill for the guy that is on the show that he cannot get hard on. It's natural. So I don't know how to call that phone number. <laughs> so I'm getting calls for Jim and Sam now. I remember back in the day, and this was maybe 14, 15 years ago, when Big Kev and I were sharing the uh, same uh, spot on Saturday nights on the Saturday Night Virus. And... Um, I would get phone calls for him and he would get phone calls for me and he would shit on my callers. <clears throat> and um, I would always be very respectful of his callers, of course. But there you go. That's the difference between us. 
why they occur. I don't really have a oh. Yeah, hey, Dr. Steve. I had a question for you. I was hoping you might be able to uh, tell me a little bit about polynidal cysts. Sure. I have what I think is a polynidal cyst kind of near um, the bottom of my tailbone, kind of up, uh, you know, near the top of my uh, uh, butt cheeks, if you will, kind of inside a bit. Um, I don't know what causes them, why they occur. I don't really have a sedentary lifestyle, at least I don't think I do. Um, but what's weird is it seems to come and go. It will uh, it will flare up and, you know, get pretty uncomfortable and annoying, and then it seems to uh, drain and then it goes away to what feels like I have a little bit of a scar there, and yeah. then it seems to come back. So I'm wondering if the best and only remedy for this is going to be a surgery of some kind, and if I do have to have a surgery, uh, how invasive is that, and what is the uh, recovery time? And yeah, that's a great question. So pylonidal cysts. Uh, pylo refers to hair. Nidus means a nest. So this is a nest of hairs. That's where it got its name because when they first opened these things up, they would find a bunch of hairs inside. And um, it's an abnormal pocket of skin that uh, contains hair follicles that have been driven under the skin. It's almost always at the cleft of the buttocks at the upper part near the tailbone. And uh, the, the the hypothesis is that hair uh, they're, they're like extreme ingrown hairs and uh, uh, the hair punctures the skin and becomes embedded and then the pylonidal cyst eventually gets infected and then you get a painful abscess that drains and it becomes chronic and uh, they can be drained but then they usually come back. Most of the time it has to be removed surgically to uh, have a definitive solution to this. Uh, they usually occur in young men and uh, people who sit for prolonged periods of time, particularly truck drivers, are at higher risk. It doesn't you – now, this guy had an active lifestyle. That's fine. Even if you play – let's just say you play video games an hour a day and you're reclining. So you're actually – instead of sitting on the ischial tuberosity, which is the the ass bone, if you if you're sitting up straight – and you put your hand under your butt cheek, you can feel this bone that's actually making contact with the uh, chair. And I'm feeling mine right now. That's what you're supposed to sit on. But there are people who will recline and they actually sit on the sacrum, which is the flat part of the back part of the ass. That, you know, uh, you've got your lumbar spine, which is your lower back. And then as you go down, then you get into the sacral spine. That's the flat part where it starts to brought, spread out in the pelvis in the very back. And people will um, recline and kind of lean back and, and sit on that part of their uh, spine instead of sitting on the buttocks themselves. And uh, that um, part of the body is it's thin. The skin there is thin. And you're cutting off some of the circulation to the skin when you do that. And you may be forcing hair follicles under the skin with prolonged, uh, 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 you know, day in and day out sitting like that. So um, you want to make sure that you are sitting straight up in your chair. I'll tell you the perfect chair. Back in the 70s, we had these things called knee chairs. And um, I think they still have them. Let me, let me Google that real quick. Um, 
And what they did was uh, you didn't have a back on the chair. You had a front on the chair. And the front on the chair, you would um, uh, put your knees on. Yeah, there they are. Pro-ergo ergonomic chairs, uh, ergonomic kneeling chair. Check that out. And it would force your spine into a straight uh, physiologic position. And uh, your weight went on the front of your knees. It wasn't that much weight. Uh, instead of on your back and it forced you to sit up straight and uh, you will not – well, you'll be at decreased risk of getting a pilonidal cyst if you use a knee chair instead of a regular chair. So uh, watch your posture. That may have something to do with it. And then ultimately um, they will um, uh, have to uh, do surgery on these if you can't get it under control non-surgically. And even then sometimes they'll come back – if people don't uh, fix their posture. Okay. Hi, Dr. Steve. I'm 54 years old, and recently I had a PSA screening as part of some overall blood work in preparation for my regular annual physical. And uh, my PSA results showed an increase since the last screening I had, which was back in 2015. Um, The levels went from around 1.8 to about 3.25. Um, so I have two questions about this. Along with the results that I viewed online, um, they include a quote-unquote standard range. My current 3.25 value falls within that range, but it's right below the max for the range. So which is more significant, the absolute value or the delta from the last screening? And my second question is, from a bit of research, I've seen that there are many factors that can increase PSA levels, like infections and things like that. But I also saw that there's some not completely conclusive evidence that recent ejaculation can increase PSA levels. So I did have relations with my wife the night before awesome. my lab work. In fact, probably only about seven hours before the blood draw. Um, do you have any thoughts on the possibility that... Uh, that can cause a PSA level increase. Um, and lastly, I should say that my scheduled physical is in a few days, and it will include a digital exam, which I've had uh, regularly for about 15 years with no evidence of enlarged prostate or blood or anything like that. So thanks. <laughs> oh, sorry. That was, that was... The um, digital rectal exam will tell you as much as just about any of the other things that you mentioned, the uh, PSA being, okay, so he's talking about the prostatic specific antigen and people, long time listeners of the show will know that we've talked about prostatic specific antigen when we're talking about female ejaculation because uh, female ejaculation, if it has prostatic specific antigen in it, cannot just be urine. Uh, it must be derived from prostate-like tissue in the female body. So that's where you've heard us talking about that before. And besides, we're talking about prostate screening. So um, people – we used to do these PSAs and when they got above four, we would start biopsying people. And we found that um, that may have been causing more harm than good. In other words, we had more false positives than we had true positives. And uh, doing those biopsies can – uh, you know, cause significant uh, adverse events. I had a my um, other very good friend uh, in town who's an attorney had a big giant prostate and a mildly elevated PSA, 
and they um, did uh, a biopsy on him, and he got septic afterward because the biopsy, of course, they do it by um, uh, shoving a probe up your ass, and of course they prep it and stuff, and then they stick a needle through the back part of the rectum into the prostate. It's the easiest way to get to it. And uh, uh, even the best prep every once in a while will fail and you'll introduce bacteria into the prostate. You get a raging prostatitis. If it's raging enough, it can uh, work its way out into the bloodstream. And the next thing you know, you're septic. Now, this is, you know, I don't know what the rate is. It's very low, but it does happen. So uh, they were causing some harm when they were doing it. And, um, you know, um, determining the accuracy of PSA testing has been very difficult. And so they look at uh, sensitivity and specificity in these tests. Traditional cutoff for an abnormal PSA level has been four nanograms per milliliter. And uh, the American Cancer Society looked at the literature assessing PSA performance and, you know, remember we talked about these meta-analyses where they, where they pool all the data and then try to get a bigger study with more power out of it. The estimated sensitivity of PSA cutoff was 21 percent. Uh, that's terrible for detecting any prostate cancer and 51 percent, a little bit better, for detecting high-grade cancers. Uh, using a cutoff of three where you're turning it down, so you say, wow, now we're going to catch more we're going to, you know, cast a wider net, increase the sensitivity to 32 and 68 percent. But and the specificity was 91 percent for a PSA cutoff of four, which with specificity um, um, it, it talks about if it's negative when you're healthy, uh, sp- sensitivity is positive when you have disease. Um, so uh what you're kind of more interested in, though, is the positive predictive value. In other words, uh, what are the proportion of men with an elevated PSA who actually have prostate cancer? And the positive predictive value for PSA greater than 4 is about 30%. So in other words, if you have a, a PSA greater than 4, 70% of those people will not have prostate cancer. All right. So how do we improve this? Um, you can do serial PSA measurements and you measure it over and over again and see if it's increasing over time. Um, uh, you can uh, do this thing called a PSA velocity. We were very excited about that at one time, uh, that if you get a, an increase in greater than about 0.75 nanogram per milliliter per year, in other words, if you went from 3 to 3.75 in a year, uh, we thought, ooh, now that's very exciting. That uh, increases the um, uh, sensitivity and specificity of this test. And uh, what they looked at were very small, uh, a very small group of people. It was only 18 cancer cases. So when they did a f- subsequent analysis, they found really – uh, there there wasn't a, a lot of advantage to doing the PSA velocity. So there's this thing called the free PSA. And uh, separate meta-analysis of free PSA noted considerable variability in free PSA assays, specimen handling, cutoffs, and patient populations. The authors concluded more research was necessary. So there's all these other things that we can do. Just 
you know what? Just talk to your urologist. They stay up on this. And, um, you know, there's just no consensus on using any of the PSA modifications. None of them has been shown in clinical trials to reduce the number of unnecessary biopsy or Im- improve clinical outcomes. And uh, the total PSA cutoff of four has still been the uh, accepted standard because it balances the trade-off between missing important cancers at a curable stage and avoiding, and avoiding the detection of insignificant disease and subjecting men to unnecessary prostate biopsies. So um, I, I, I still – so yours is under four. So, I, you know, I talked to your urologist, but I don't think they're going to uh, pursue that. They will, however, uh, monitor you over time since your PSA increased and uh, and they'll check it again in probably six months to a year and see now if it increases and gets above four, then they may subject you to a biopsy at that point. And hopefully it'll turn out okay. So keep us in the loop on that one. All right. Hey, Dr. Steve. Phil here again. Uh, question. Can x-rays mess up your flora? And my mother and I were talking, just wondering about that. Um, you can it. Uh, let me know. Appreciate it. Thank you. That is a fascinating question. Uh, so he's, what he's asking is, can the radiation from just getting an abdominal x-ray mess up your gut flora? Now, I'm not um, aware of any study that's ever shown that a plain abdominal x-ray which has very little ionizing radiation in it anymore. It, you know, back in Renchen's day, it was insane how how much radiation you would get trying to make a film. But uh, the sensors have become more and more sophisticated, increasingly sensitive. So they've ratcheted down the dose of radiation that you that you get from a plain X-ray. Now, that's not the case in uh, radiation oncology where they're hitting you in uh, doses that are measured in rads if you've, or centigray, uh, which is the new uh, terminology for um, – or the new SI unit for uh, radiation. And um, they, there are some studies that show that um, probiotics may help prevent d- the damage – from uh, ra- external beam radiation to the stump or for, to the abdominal cavity, so um, I am. Uh, the, these are again are rat studies and probiotics. This is I'm just looking at a study from PubMed. Probiotics are considered safe microbial supplements containing fermented foods such as yogurt, fermented milk, and juice. They're reported to re- restore normal intestinal microflora, eliminate pathogenic enteric bacteria and reinforce the uh, intestinal barrier. Uh, Let me see. Uh, They're effective for traveler's diarrhea, infantile diarrhea, irritable bowel syndrome. And um, they evaluated the effects of various kinds of probiotics against radiation-induced diarrhea. Most of them showed beneficial effects of probiotics for the incidence of the diarrhea. One clinical study which reported a negative result for anti-diarrheal effect uh, revealed that the probiotics could delay the onset time of the loose stool. So they seem to be um, improving 
diarrhea caused by radiation enteritis. And so, therefore, I mean, that implies that the radiation, yes, can affect the intestinal flora if probiotics can correct that. So, but these, this is high dose radiation to uh, the abdominal cavity, not the same thing as uh, a plain x ray. So, not aware of any effects of that. Dr. Steve, I just left you a question about shingles and whether or not they can be fatal. Uh, Okay, I've only got a minute left. Uh, Rarely, uh, shingles can cause uh, encephalitis, in other words, a brain infection, and rarely people can die from that, but that is extremely rare. 30 years, I've never seen it. I've read maybe one case report on that. Uh, Second question, follow-up. My wife is 51, and she has had a kidney transplant as well as a pancreas transplant. Can she get Shingrix? Okay, so Shingrix is the new shingles vaccine. It is an adjuvant-killed vaccine. And I don't believe there's a contraindication to people who have had transplants. Matter of fact, they may want you to have it, but you need to talk to your uh, uh, transplant coordinator about that. Uh, Don't take my advice on that. Talk to them first and uh, let me know what they say. All right. Thanks. Always go to Dr. Scott. Who isn't here today? Lady Diagnosis, also not here. My wife, Tacey, and everybody else has ever been involved in the show. We can't forget Rob Sprantz, Bob Kelly, Greg Hughes, Anthony Cumia, Jim Norton, Travis Tepp, Eric Nagel, Roland Campos, Sam Roberts, Pat Duffy, Dennis Falcone, Ron Bennington, Fez Watley, and Jim McClure, whose support of this show has never gone unappreciated. Listen to our SiriusXM show on the Faction Talk channel, SiriusXM channel 103, Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern, on demand, and other times at Jim McClure's pleasure or Lewis Johnson's pleasure. Many thanks to our listeners whose voicemail and topic ideas make this job very easy. Go to our website at drsteve.com for schedules and podcasts and other crap. Until next time, check your stupid nuts for lumps. Quit smoking, get off your asses, and get some exercise. We'll see you in one week for the next edition of Weird Medicine. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.